I feel the need, the need for speed and UAPs with special guest Chris Lato. Episode 25 and season one finale of the Michigan UFO Sightings and Paranormal Encounters podcast. Welcome to the Michigan UFO Sightings and Paranormal Encounters podcast. Coming to you from the glacial dumping grounds known as the Michigan Basin. I'm Michelle. And I'm Wayne. And we are a Michigan-based husband and wife educator and podcasting duo that after having a UFO sighting in March of 2018, have started to examine UFOs and other paranormal topics within Michigan and beyond. Topics include UFOs, the paranormal, conspiracy theories, ghosts, alternative history and archaeology, cryptids, and all things strange and paranormal. So sit back, grab a drink, and come along with us on this journey down the paranormal rabbit hole. Oh my goodness, it's episode 25 on February 25th. 2022 and it is absolutely goose it is one year one year so this is our season one finale this is gonna be awesome and what a crazy ride it's been since we started this it's been a great year we've met a lot of great people interesting stories the whole way through and we learned a lot too i mean just from the people we've come in contact with that we never thought we would be talking with and the things that we're talking about just really blows my mind where everything has kind of gone in this and where it will continue to go. Yeah. So absolutely. All right. Well, we're going to go ahead and just jump into this because we have one of the most awesome guests. I can't believe he agreed to come on the podcast and have a good time with us, even though the time was short. Wish Straight we out of a... beautiful Portugal. Yes. Chris Lato from Portugal, a retired F-16 fighter pilot turned YouTuber and UAP investigator. So this is going to be an awesome interview. And I couldn't have thought of a better guest to close out season one with than Chris Lato. So just to let everybody know that our shows are now uploaded onto YouTube as well. So make sure to search for us on YouTube by typing in Michigan UFO Sightings and Paranormal Encounters Podcast. You'll see the channel there. So make sure to click like and subscribe. Yes, hopefully our URL will be changing here relatively soon to a much easier way that we can tell people to find our channel because it's kind of hard right now on youtube we've finally gotten to the point that i believe that we get our own domain now well at least we get some kind of a, a shortcut url instead of what they give us but anyways yes get onto youtube find us subscribe and hit that like button for your favorite episodes don't forget we're also of course on facebook with the facebook group And then also on Instagram, you can follow us over there at M-I-U-F-O-S-P-E-P. So information with new show news will be updated as it becomes available. And we're also on Twitter at M-I underscore U-F-O. If you like the podcast and would like to rock out some of the latest swag, head on over to our online store at 
MIUFO podcast store, all one word, dot online to check out all of our cool gear. And don't forget to check out our Patreon page if you would like to support the podcast there. It is patreon.com forward slash M-I-U-F-O-S-P-E-P where you can sign up. We can't wait to give you a shout out for all of your support. And don't forget, it's not just the interviews of some great people and the stories that they have, but we also love to hear your stories as well. So if you have a story you would like to tell, we would like to talk to you. You can reach out to us at mi.ufo.podcast at gmail.com. Send us a brief summary of your experience and we'll contact you to discuss things further and try to get you or your story on the podcast. And don't forget that all of the links that we talked about, you can find below in our show notes. All right, Michelle, I think it's that time. It's time for What's in the News. Yes. What is in the news? Well, the New York Post gave us this one on February 25th of this year. And it looks like uh, it was after they looked at an article from The Sun just three days prior. This is Mysterious Bulging Triangle UFO filmed over city for two hours. Alien hunters were left stunned after a bulging triangle UFO was filmed lurking over a major city for two hours. The unusual object was spotted prowling the skies of Islamabad, Pakistan, in broad daylight by an extraterrestrial enthusiast. Gobsmacked, Arslan Warak says he spent a lengthy two hours watching the triangular shape hovering above the capital city. The 33-year-old was mesmerized by the unusual object drifting over the city's wealthy DHA-1 district, and the clip has now sent skywatchers' tongues wagging. He recorded the UFO making the most of the clear airspace for over 12 minutes from different angles to acquire the best view. The businessman, formerly of Birmingham, then shared the unbelievable sighting on the internet for other alien fanatics to enjoy. Arslan explained, I still don't know what it was. I filmed it for over 12 minutes at different times, took dozens of pictures, and observed it for the best part of two hours. To the naked eye, it seemed like a black round rock, but as I zoomed in, I could see it was roughly the shape of a triangle with a clear bulge on top towards the back. It was solid black and had no sharp edges. It wasn't reflecting too much light and no lights were emanating from it. In the extraordinary footage, the mystifying object is seen hanging motionless over the hustle and bustle of the capital city below. A fly and several birds then also crossed into the shot, showing the clear difference between the creatures and the distant UFO. Arslan added, I don't know what it was, but I know what it wasn't. It wasn't a bird. I actually got birds in the clip while I was filming this thing. I fly drones myself, so I know it wasn't a commercial drone either. And it makes no sense for our military to be flying secret drones over a posh area of Islamabad where most of the army and government officers live. After sharing the enthralling clip online, he sparked a frenzy amongst fellow UFO hunters who applauded the clarity of the sighting. 
One admirer wrote, the recording is extremely high quality, not just for the technical achievement and such extended physical effort to track it for so long, but also for the extended verbal commentary and description of the event. Do you realize how rare a document like this is? Another viewer added, this is how you capture a UFO. While a third conspiracy theorist suggested the interestingly shaped object was a perfect match for a sighting they'd had in New York. They wrote, it was just like this, not blinking lights, no nothing, just floating in the sky for about four minutes and then went went up until it was completely gone. Arslan stayed to appreciate the curious shape swirling in the skies until it was too dark to see it. Yeah, one thing about making a video of a UFO is that it is always really good to capture like birds in the area really quickly. You want to get buildings in the foreground and what's around you so it helps determine distance. And so when people analyze these videos, they have a reference point to be able to say, okay, where this person is standing, they are 50 feet from this building, and then they can determine altitude and things like that. So it's really good to use your camera to get a picture of the surroundings and where you're at and then film the UFO. So this is really well done. Well, in the the zooming in, too, if that's how he was able to zoom in, that is just the the resemblance to a triangle is just eerie. It is very strange. I mean, in the fact that, okay, if it was a bird, it would be moving. If it was a piece of debris or some kind of a plane or something in the wind at those altitudes, it should still be moving. And this thing is just sitting there. And by the way, you guys can all see pictures of this in the article and watch the some of the video. Follow the link to the post and you will see the the actual picture and what's going on in the video. So to continue, he brushed off skeptics comments, insisting regardless of what he saw, humans are not alone in the universe. The 33 year old continued with the number of stars and planets in the known universe. It is statistically impossible that we are the only intelligent beings in this universe. There must be civilizations which are millions or billions of years more advanced than us. And then there must be others that are just starting out. Have they visited Earth? I think we have to look at the evidence and go where it leads. There is certainly a possibility. It comes after alien hunters claimed NASA accidentally captured a flying saucer zooming above the Earth on an unearthed image from the Apollo 9 mission. They suggested the picture showing the tiny black triangle lurking among the clouds was mistakenly shared by the space agency, whatever that might mean. So this is uh, very, very interesting, and I think it's legit. I'm just saying it looks legit to me. Not just over the skies of Michigan. Nope. We're over in Pakistan now, so... I think we need to get into Communication Corner, and I think we have another story from Lance. Well, we do. We have a continuation of a story from Lance. Um, so he writes, years back, a couple buddies of mine and I took the old camper out hoping to catch a deer in Muskegon, Michigan. 
there was a cornfield at the edge of the property we were on. One night, along a line of trees, we witnessed a triangular UFO level with the line of trees, possibly 50 feet or so in the air. It looked to be at least 40 feet wide. At the center of the triangle, there was a large circle that continued to get bigger and smaller, so almost like a pulsing. Yeah, I was going to say, it sounds like a pulsing. Yeah. But again, our our triangle that we saw, that did not have that central type of light. So there's definitely different craft out there of, of the triangular shapes. Well, it also says there was a circle that rotated, spinning around the circle ball in the center. Additionally, there was a round light on each point of the triangle. It was dark, black in color. It made no sound at all as it moved along the line of the cornfield. My buddies and I watched it for at least 10 minutes before it zipped away until it was no more than a dot in the sky. This reminded me of so many times fishing off the pier at Lake Michigan and seeing things in the sky that were not airplanes due to the zigzag patterns that would fly and the up and down motions that they would make. I've seen a lot no matter what anyone's beliefs are, I know that there is something else out there, and I've seen it. We're going to go ahead and jump into some shout-outs, starting with the Midnight Truck Stop, hosted by Big T and Blue Knight. A very cool couple of guys with a great concept as they explore those strange and unexplained incidents that so many of us have experienced while traveling along desolate highways. Give them a listen as they collect stories from all around the country from truckers and travelers alike. Next, we've got the Lost in the Dark podcast, hosted by Burton and Aaron. This is a pretty cool podcast that bills itself as an attempt to capture incredible conversations between best friends as we explore all of our passions, but especially music and the world of heavy metal. So if you're into paranormal investigations and loud heavy metal music, give them a listen. Strong language, but it's heavy metal in the paranormal. What else would you expect? Next up, we have Cosmographia, the Randall Carlson podcast. Yes, Randall, we're looking at you. You need to come on the podcast. It is their mission to investigate and document the catastrophic history of the world and the evidence for advanced knowledge in earlier cultures. You will also learn of the profound effect It has on human civilization, both past and future, its relevance to Earth herself and how to successfully cope with the inevitable changes that are sure to visit our dynamic geocosmic system. And we've got Christina Gomez and the Shifting the Paradigm podcast. This podcast features a weekly interview that focuses on a wide variety of mysterious topics related to UFO UAP sightings, and the possibility of alien visitation in the present and the past. Christina Gomez interviews researchers, witnesses, enthusiasts, and field investigators on their own pursuits of the truth behind the mysteries. Also included is Christina's new show called Mysteries with a History, where Christina will be covering a wide variety of topics from unexplained disappearances to UFO sightings to encounters with bizarre creatures and so much more that can come under the umbrella of the extraordinary, the strange, the paranormal, and the supernatural. 
All right. It is time to move into our interview with Chris Lato. I want to say first and foremost that this interview was outstanding. I loved every minute of it. The downside to this interview is that we only had an hour to talk. We could have probably gone for another three or four hours easily. And I hope that we will get him back on the podcast soon. So, Michelle, why don't you tell us about our guest today, Chris Lato. Well, Chris writes, I was an F-16 pilot for 18 years and retired mid-2020. I had an amazing career, but have moved on to a new phase, and now I live the expat lifestyle with my wife and three kids in Lagos, Portugal. I spend my free time making investigative YouTube videos about unexplained aerial phenomena. I started making videos to try and impress my kids. Their dreams to become YouTubers have since changed, but now find meaning and motivation to use my experience towards solving the UAP mystery. All right, ladies and gentlemen. It is our honor and privilege to welcome all the way from Lagos, Portugal, Chris Lato. Yeah, great. Happy to be here, Wayne. Thanks for having me. Oh, dude. The honor is all ours. I've been watching all your videos and I'm like, this guy is just like me when it comes to thinking about these things. Uh, I'm more of a nuts and bolts guy. I'm a science teacher. My wife and I saw a UFO. It changed everything for us. And then I see you doing your analysis and everything of the videos, which we'll get into. And it, it just, it's scientific. And I like that. And and I can wrap my my brains and my hands around the physics and the trigonometry and the calculus and all that good stuff. So I do want to dive into that with you. So thank you for joining us once again. Excellent. Yeah. Happy to be here. Well, Chris, we're going to start things out by asking, can you tell our audience a little bit about your background before you started examining UFO or UAPs? Okay, definitely. I grew up in, in Houston, Texas. I played soccer and tennis growing up. I was always um, interested in science. You know, I really, I really like chemistry. Uh, I did well at it. So when I went to university, I, I got into the Air Force Academy. You know, my buddy in physics class actually kept telling me about it. Uh, his dad was a naval aviator, and he told me about you know basically you go to. He went to Annapolis actually, and he's actually was a commander of an F-18 squadron um, recently. Uh, I haven't talked to him that much to be honest. But he basically told me about the Air Force Academy. I applied. I went there. Uh, it was basically an opportunity, you know, you can't pass up. They let me in. <laughs> I was I was surprised, to be honest. Um, but uh, I went and it was very challenging. Um, and I, yeah, I really enjoyed it. Uh, looking back, I guess, <laughs> I guess enjoy is a very, yeah, I wouldn't call it enjoy. Um, but it was a very intense and worthwhile experience, I guess. Um, so I graduated from the Air Force Academy uh, in material science. So I got a degree in material science. It's it's a branch of chemistry. Uh, and that it was qu quite new at the time. This was in 2000. There was only six actually bachelors in material science in the U.S. Well, at, at least we were told that was me and five other people at the Air Force Academy. Um, so kind of cutting edge in many ways. So material science graduated 
uh, in 2000 and then, and then entered the Air Force and then flew as a F-16 pilot. And how long did you do the, as a F-16 pilot? So the whole career, essentially, um, that's a very broad term. You know, basically, you're, it's kind of your primary job, but everyone has a secondary job. Uh, especially in the F-16 community, uh, we only have it's a single seat aircraft. So there's only there's, there's half of us compared to a F-15 or an F-18 squadron. You know, with all these F-18 encounters, um, they have two people in the plane. You know, they have the pilot uh, and they have certain duties, primarily um, navigating, flying. You know, they do certain air-to-air engagements and then they have the weapon system officer in the back. Uh, and they're focused more on the systems, you know, operating the air to ground. They're specialists on the, you know, the air to ground weapons. Um, so, yeah, generally they have two people. So they have double the people to do all these additional duties. Um, so you, you always have an additional duty. So as far as my additional duties, um, I was a uh, safety officer, which I took very seriously. Actually, I really enjoyed it. You know, you mentioned uh, science and it, it was investigation. I really like that. Um Looking through, um, you know, considering how a plane actually crashes, you know, you can get very detailed information from the fan blades, you know, because if a turbine is spinning, right, you can actually calculate just from the looking at the turbine, uh, how fast the, the RPMs are going on the engine when it impacts the ground, right? And you can actually tell from the angle of impact um, exactly how fast that engine was spinning at the time, which can tell you a lot of details about, you know, was the pilot trying to go around, you know, and you look at this recent F-35 crash uh, on the uh, aircraft carrier, right? Um, so you could tell there is, say no one survived, right? And you got no other information. Uh, the engine such a heavy metal steel part normally made out of uh, titanium, you know, it's, it's able to withstand intense temperatures. So the, from those turbine blades, you know, you can determine back to was the pilot engaging the afterburner, right? You could tell, so then that would tell you, oh, the pilot was trying to go around and something happened, you know? So you can, um, you can really deduce from very minute details uh, back to what happened, you know, what happened, causation. And then from causation now you can determine the steps to decrease that in the future. You know, initially it's just procedural steps. You know, you're gonna institute, don't do that. You're gonna tell people don't do that, you know, all the way up to, can we actually, engineer this out of the out of the equation you know can you take that error completely out of the equation um through these steps and then and then that goes back it's a feedback loop that goes back into the appropriation um you know basically systems engineering aspect and then they they make the systems more safe so i really enjoyed that i did safety for a while as well as simulators uh aggressor so very varied career it was very intense um you know, every week was 60 to 80 hours a week, you know, intense, um, but all, all very interesting. I yeah, really enjoyed it. Oh, those hours that you put in each week might answer this next question. Um, why did you decide to retire to Portugal? Yeah, that's a, it's a good question. We've, we've lived all around, um, all around, I wouldn't say the world, I guess. We lived in Italy, uh, South Korea, Turkey, Alaska, uh, and then finally Spain. And it, it, once you live outside of your home country for, I don't know, a decade, um, it's very hard, I found, to go back <laughs> because you can see, it's so easy to see, like, the cracks, uh, the obvious hypocrisies. Um, 
And yeah, so anyway, well, we really liked Europe and Europe I find is, is very, it has a, a good balance, a better balance, I think, between family, lifestyle and, and work. Uh, it's very safe. There's no weapons. Um, I feel very safe everywhere I go. Um, so walking around, my kids walk to school every day, you know, or not every day, but uh, they do walk to school, 10 years old, they take the bus. And Portugal is open to immigration. So it was right here. I love to surf. Uh, so we just moved to Portugal, tried it out, and yeah, we love it so far. It's very, it's, it's lived, it exceeded our expectations. What was it that first made you interested in this UFO, UAP phenomenon, especially coming from a military combat pilot background? It was 100% the uh, David Fravor interview. Uh, the first one with Lex Fridman. That one really just changed my whole perspective really, because uh, basically just from, it's a two and a half hour interview that, that David Fravor had that initial one. And he goes through and just explains in such detail. Uh, and I just feel like I know him, uh, you know, I've worked with people like him for the for decades previously, you know, I, I, I was an Air Force pilot as well. I, I kind of glossed over that part. Uh, but, you know, a lot of it is, uh, again, very intense training, very intense practice through all the different types of mission sets. Fravor kind of, you, you get a sense of what knowledge base is there um, when he starts talking about <laughs> basically anything related to aviation or the, or the systems. You know, he went to top gun school. He was a, a commander right when he, right when the Nimitz happened, he was just a month as a new squadron commander. And it's very difficult to get to that position. You know, everyone that starts as a fighter pilot, I think that makes it right. You make it through pilot training. It's quite difficult, you know, um, you have to have an, enough spots there. They, they have to need the fighters at the time. So it's very difficult to get there and to excel. And everyone that, that does do that or that starts fighter training wants, or as a fighter pilot, wants to be a squadron commander. You know, ultimately, that's kind of like the dream. Um, I, I, don't, I guess I don't know too many other careers, but I guess it would be like tenure or, or something or, uh, you know, you made it. There can only be one person that's squadron commander and they only have so many um, commander positions you know a squadron uh in a in a f-16 squadron you have 30 40 people in the squadron only one squadron commander i mentioned the f-18 squadrons you know they have twice as many people so maybe they have 70 80 people only one squadron commander so it's it's very difficult to get to that position um and everyone wants to get to that position so the fact he made it there uh and he's a top gun instructor and just how he described the engagement you know, it was almost like I, I haven't seen the UAP ever. Um, you know, I'd love to, but uh, I felt like I was there. You know, basically, if someone you know and really trust, someone like in your family related this uh, experience to you, and then you have to be like, yeah, I mean, I believe it, you know. And then three other people were there that corroborated it, plus hundreds of other witnesses, um, all the radar data, Kevin Day, Gary Voorhees. You know, it's just so much evidence. Once you start pulling that that string, you know, it just, it just keeps going. And I, I think it, it, yeah, it just keeps going. So, I mean, we can say that David Fravor was pretty much the, the top of the top. When you get to be a squadron commander of a high-tech fighter squadron on a carrier, he's no slouch. I mean, that, that's like the guy you want in that position and it, it takes a lot to get there. Is that assessment correct? Yes. Yeah. Without a doubt. And just talking to him, you, you see he's level-headed. Um, he, he, you know, I'm sure his passion, I could tell you probably why he entered the Air Force. 
I'm sorry, the Air Force, why he entered the Navy, um, you know, is, is he probably loves to fly. Uh, he probably loves, you know, he's probably patriotic. Um, you know, he probably goes to church, you know, he's probably like, uh, would take care of his mom and dad, <laughs> you know, he's, he's right, like, you're right. kind of all American. Um, and, and I, yeah. And I, and I think that's who you want in that position and, and not just that's who you want, but it, it's a mold, you know, it, it took him 14 years of, of, you know, 70 hour weeks, you know, months and months and months away from his family on a ship in bunks. Uh, in all these training situations, you know, they spend millions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars, actually, to send you through Top Gun. That's a very expensive training out in out in the Southwest. So it, it's also his proficiency at that point, because it's it's a it's a very perishable skill. Immediate, you lose it immediately um, flying. And yeah, very quickly, a few weeks and you will start to see your edge slip. And if you if I haven't, if I hadn't flown for a month, uh, I could seriously tell it. And six weeks now, you're, you're talking about kind of safety, safety related. Now I'm just focusing on being safe, you know, and then and then after maybe a week or two getting back in the plane and flying. Now I can start thinking about getting ahead of the jet. You know, we call it getting behind the jet. Right. Essentially, you. Um, so it just takes a while. So just at that point, not only was he good enough to get to that position, but he's also proficient at that point. You know, he's been flying probably many, many hours, instructing many, many hours. He used to looking outside, talking to someone else. Hey, do you see that down there? Talking their eyes on to, to contacts on the ground. Um, so yeah, he's definitely he, he changed my perspective. But before that, I didn't believe anything in UFOs. You know, I'd no net uh, didn't even think about it um, at all. To be honest, I had the scientific view. You know, the standard scientific view: faster than life travel is not possible. Uh, everything's so far away. If we had heard, you know, if there was life out there, why haven't seen any signals? Uh, basically, the standard scientific argument for why it could it couldn't be possible. Uh, well, then your brain and my brain work alike. <laughs> <laughs> um, did that well, happen to you? Did it change? Or, um, Well, based off of what we saw in 2018, I mean, Wayne can even tell you the first thing out of my mouth was, you know, when did our military get that? Yeah. And I have a background in aviation, not a big one. My dad is a retired United pilot. I've been flying since I was like two years old. One of my earliest memories is being in, you know, a Cherokee flying to my dad's house, you know, and picking me up and, and flying me there. And I even have a little bit of a GA background in flying single engine Cessnas and stuff. So when you talk about getting in front of the aircraft or being behind, you know, that workload, you're talking about the workload in the cockpit of the plane, making sure you're in front and planning ahead. You always want to be 10 steps ahead of that aircraft because just in case you're always looking for a place to land in case the engine dies and you can't start it. You're got your checklist ready. So I'm, I'm right there with you. That's why I wanted to talk to you. Cause I find this fascinating from a, a career fighter pilot standpoint and view. And the reason I'm asking these questions about flavor and such as yourself is that I'm trying to establish a pattern here that a lot of civilians don't understand when it comes to military aviators is that you guys are no slouches. The training is not easy. It's not Microsoft flight simulator stuff. This stuff that you guys go through to become trained uh, observers in weapon systems operators, you guys are no nonsense guys when you're in that cockpit because you have to make these life or death decisions and one wrong move, one wrong spotting thing can cost you or cost somebody on the ground their life. 
So I was just wondering, could you expand a little bit on the training that's involved and, and kind of dig into that a little bit? Yeah, definitely. Um, I guess I would say that our, you know, the combat, much like sports, right? I, I guess what kind of drew me to it, I've always been a, uh, not a historian, I guess, but very interested in history, especially historical warfare, you know, and Growing up in middle school, I would always do the reports if it was possible on some type of catapult system or how knights were able to rule the ancient um, battlefield. You know, how, and basically, um, you can come up with all these fancy theories, right? And you can make these fancy simulators, but at the end of the day, when the bullet goes through your brain, right, it kind of solves the equation. Um, so, I, I, and I, yeah, I guess that's kind of graphic, but it is graphic in the end. Um, yeah, you can, and I've noticed that, you know, I've flown with a lot of other countries. You know, I've, I flew with Turkey, I flew in their Air Force, uh, and I've flown, um, you know, with the, with the South Koreans and, and all through Europe, et cetera. And you have to remember is that these tactics that we're using, we didn't just, you know, come up with these in the past few weeks. Um, all of this training, this system, it came out of World War II, right? When the, out of the military industrial complex that, that won the war, essentially. And it's really written in blood. You know, that's what they say about Navy training. I actually went to Navy training for my initial. And they say the NATOPS training manual is written in blood, right, essentially. Um, because all these tactics and the, the way the training is done has been learned through combat, right? Actually losing countless lives, how many lives, billions and billions of dollars uh, over the last hundred years of this machine, this is the military machine. Uh, and they've gotten very good at producing combat systems you know and that's what i think a fighter system is it's a it's a fusion of a human uh operator which work, uses they sensor they f um fuse the information basically the human does the sensor fusion now right and combined with a flying machine essentially it's it's one system you talk to fighter pilots what they talk about is um, they basically meld with the with the with the machine you know i, I can hear through the, the radar warning receiver further distances. You feel the same thing happens in a car, right? When you're driving in a car, um, you're kind of a different thing, right? You, even people act differently when they get in a car, you see road rage, you know, that um, you become kind of a different uh, different system. But anyway, the, the point is, is that uh, the old school fighter pilot techniques that I'm using, right? I was able to show that the gimbal stayed within 10 nautical miles. I think those are very powerful uh, because it's simple and it's been proven over a hundred years. Right. And, and you know, as a science teacher, that you've probably taught many different things that and you've probably taught things in the past that we know now to be wrong. I'm sure you have. Right. At some point. Um, so I think that's the difference is these the training of the, the combat, especially the combat aviators. OK, when we talk about cargo, I mean, I'm not out there to <laughs> hammer any cargo planes. And uh, but it, it is a it is a different it's a whole different ballgame. It really is. Um, you know, they just don't have uh, people able to die if they mess up. And, and I, well, you see one thirty pilots is different. I have friends that flew C one thirties and they were actually did more combat time than I did, you know, and I'm sure in their instance, their training is actually exceptional um, because the risks are just so high. And, and after some point in time, um, you know, you can think whatever you want. All right. But if you go out there and you crash and die, um, that pretty much solves the equation, right? Or if you get shot by the enemy, that also solves the equation uh, in combat. So the U S We've just ground our military. This is, it's not like we just came up with these, these training tactics over a few years. You know, this is, this is 80, 90 years of, of, 
of combat essentially. So, yeah, that's a long answer. <laughs> Good answer because it kind of leads into the next set of questions I want to ask you. So there's the three famous UAP videos that were leaked or eventually released by the, the Navy, the gimbal, the go fast and the TikTok. Um, can you give us with your background and everything now that you've explained 18 years of going through this training, 70, 80 hours a week, can you give us what your conclusions uh, that you reached based on your analysis and expertise in those weapon systems um, and from being a fighter pilot, what, what kind of conclusion did you come to? Yeah, sure. Let's, uh, I guess we can just kind of go through them one by one. Um, I guess the hardest one to, uh, to show that it's anonymous, uh, anomalous would be the go fast. Uh, and, and really it's because, uh, it's, I can't show that it's not a weather balloon because of a parallax. So that would mean that it could, it's probably, or possibly a weather balloon, um, when you talk to the pilots, though, when you hear them, uh, to them, obviously, they're not just engaging a stationary weather balloon. You know, I, I really believe that. Um, so from the go fast, I would say I can't I can't show that it's anything other than, um, I guess, a sphere uh, that it may or may not be stationary. I think it's moving close to the water, uh, but it could just be or I can't prove that it's not a stationary weather balloon because really I can't. Right. It, it doesn't make sense um, that the pilot and Wizzo would talk about it in the manner or how they locked it. Doesn't really make sense to me because um, I, I actually, because they, I believe they saw it with their eyes uh, because they throw the targeting pot out in front, basically the way they captured it. Um, but I can't prove that it's not a weather balloon, right? So on that, I would say I can't prove it. Uh, it's it, it seems it would be very weird that a, combat pilot and Wizzo would would be surprised and lock onto a weather balloon so i would say that's that's basically the go fast one any any questions on that or? no i i totally agree it's it's one of those things where it's it's like there's just not enough information but like you said the reaction of a highly trained crew in a military aircraft i just the video is one thing, their reaction seems to be something else, but I, I agree. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, those videos are much longer, actually. You know, we record as soon as I start the jet, especially the more recent ones when we got digital, uh, you know, 2004, they were using eight millimeter tapes. You know, so those would only have, you know, you didn't want to run them out. So you would turn them off and on in between engagements. But the the gimbal go fast. Uh, they, they were in the modern age or <laughs> moderner. So that would be digital tapes. So they turn them on on the ground. So it's just a recording. It should have had, uh, I'm curious to see what happens the next five minutes, you know, or not even five minutes. If I had exactly. another minute, you know, I could, uh, and, yeah, I was just listening to on the way driving down here. I was listening to, uh, Kevin Knuth, uh, and he was, he's done a lot of, a lot of work. Uh, a lot of work on these things, you know, and, and that's what he's basically, he said is it seems like they, they leaked like the most vanilla of all of the, the recordings, you know, no, we can't really see whether it's obviously a uh, crazy maneuver, you know, a zigzagging maneuver, some sort of acceleration that can't be explained. You know, we can talk to clear one, I guess next. Yeah. Well, one uh, speaking about the gimbal, I think it is the gimbal where you can hear the, the radar operator, the whistle in the back say, 
wow, look at them all. There's a fleet of them. They're all on the ASA. And nobody has ever broken that down. And he's talking about a fleet of these things that they're locking in the the targeting pod, correct? Well, the so the ASA is the SA page. I think it's uh, situational awareness. Situational awareness, yeah. Yeah, so you have like, uh, you have pages you can bring up on your displays, right? We had two displays, but they have three, I believe. Um, and, and one of them is an overhead view. So situational awareness. You know, it's like Halo, if you play Halo or, or any airplane game. Sure. Or like, uh, was it DCS or any kind of a combat video game, things like that? Well, DCS actually mirrors the plane. So yeah, you would see it in there. If you played DCS, you know, I show it in some of my videos. Um, but yeah, so the, the SA page, it'll basically be an overhead view and you can expand in, expand out. And what'll happen is link six, um, link 16 is the data link network, uh, that, that we use or one of them. Right. And so other assets like the Princeton in the case of the Nimitz, right. The Princeton is, has the Aegis, it's an Aegis cruiser with their amazing spy one Raider. So they can lock up targets from very far away. And they can pass that information through data link to the fighters and the fighters will get a little, you know, whatever it is, a friendly circle or a hostile red Dorito, we call it like a little red triangle. Um, and that's, you use that to fight, right? You have a map overlay. Uh, and as the flight lead now, if I have a four ship, um, I'm going to use my four ship in certain formations to maximize our firepower, right? And we're going to preserve our range, use all these different fighter techniques. Um, but you're primarily going to, that's a huge help. <laughs> that's surface, situational awareness. You know, if I can put an enemy, if if I can put a little red Dorito over a bad guy, you know, they're probably going to blow up, you know, it's, and, <laughs> and that's so powerful. Um, yeah, especially in, in air war, knowledge really is power. Um, and so it gives you a huge advantage. Well, so what he's saying is, hey, there's a fleet of them on the SA is on that little overhead view they're surrounded by contacts and it probably shows up as unknown because they don't know what they are right if they knew what they are they'd show it as friendly that's a friendly hornet you know that's a commercial airliner um you know this is unknown traffic or, or something like that um so that's what he's saying when he when he says hey there's a fleet of them on the sa there's a group of them and then they're they're able to lock one with their targeting pod uh, i think just by visually seeing it like um seeing little dots in the targeting pod and then zooming in onto one and, and then manually locking it because there's no radar information. There's no range information in any of these things, which is, which is really strange to me, actually, um, that there's no ranging information. I don't know if they, if that's because they consider it maybe classified or that's, they're like, Hey, don't release that. There's range information or more likely I get the impression they don't know. Yeah. Well, I think I had actually asked a question on one of your, uh, videos when it says range 999.99 or whatever. I remember hearing Fravor say something about that is uh, jamming. That means that the there there's something actively jamming the the range finder or something or the radar at least. Yeah, I believe that was in the Joe Rogan. I yeah. tracked that down. I think to the Joe Rogan podcast he mentions there. It's, it yeah. relates to jamming. And see, you yep. you talk about the Lex Friedman interview, and for me, it was the the Joe Rogan interview. I saw that one before the Lex Friedman and I was like, holy crap. Plus he's wearing a Detroit Tigers uh, jersey. So now I was really interested. (laughs) But yeah, I just watched the Joe Rogan one recently this past month. It it filled in a lot of the gaps for me. Yeah. 
Um, all right. So we talked a little bit about your training and stuff, and we're kind of hit on procedures and things like that. Could you okay. give us just a brief rundown on some of the procedures that you used in your analysis of the videos? Um, are in are these techniques that you were taught as a fighter pilot? Probably more like a safety officer, I'm thinking. Yeah, I'll use the gimbal since I, we'll we'll just kind of finish talking about those three. I'll use them as an example. Um, okay. Yeah, the gimbal. What used what was really useful for that is it's a turning engagement, right? The other ones, the go fast is a high to low, but the plane is just the F-18 is just going straight, and in the um, flare one, the F-18 is also going straight again, right? So the gimbal is the only one where we have an actual. And that just gives you a ton more information. Like really, that was the one where I was like, okay, this one, I can dial in on this one. Um, because if it's, if we're turning now, if you think about it, you know, if you just point out in front of you, right. And you start turning uh, and you're looking at an object that's, you know, 10 feet away. Okay. Or you're looking at an object that's 10 miles away. What you're going to find is at 10 miles away in order to track with your hand, that object's got to be going like, you know, Mach 8 or something ridiculous. It's got to travel a huge expanse of sky, right? Whereas if it's much, if it's closer now, it has to travel a smaller expanse of sky. Um, so just the fact that it was turning now, you can use those angles and, and figure it out. And I think that just came from uh, standard. Yeah, that's what you do. That is a normal fighter engagement within visual range. You know, you, you want to ID, you want to ID bad guys for, far out. ID them as hostile and then shoot them at range. Um, but if you can't, for some reason you close and then you get into within visual range now, now you're in the dogfight arena. And for that, it's all circles, right? It's, it's my weapons versus your weapons. And then who can point at the other one first and get a valid shot. Uh, and really, like we mentioned before, you mentioned getting behind the jet, right? Well, the problem with the jet is that you can't hit stop, right? You can't park the plane. So once you get behind the jet, it's very difficult to catch up, right? Because you have to be going faster than you were before mentally, uh, or you got to take some shortcuts. And that's when people get in problems. And if there's add in an emergency now, now you can have crashes, et cetera. Um, so it was really those turns. And, and, and then now I could use kind of what we did on a daily basis to reenact the engagements. Fravor talked about it, where you really have to draw it up. And as, as you go through your daily training um, in the squadron, you're training, you know, you, you learn to be a wingman first then you learn to be a two-ship flight lead four-ship flight lead uh instructor you know or mission commander then instructor you have to pass these tests you know it's very rigorous on being able to draw it adequately um so that you can debrief so the gimbal that's really what allowed it so for that um looking into the targeting pod i just i did what we did on a, on a normal basis uh is reenact you know draw the engagement up again and then i use some of those trigonometric uh tricks or I, I love trigonometry. I, you know, I love math. I love all that stuff when you can use it for real world uh, knowledge. I think it's so cool. And so um, I was able to, to use that to overlay it. I think it's time to hear a word from our sponsors and from some friends of the podcast. Your brain needs support and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, this is Sev Talk from MUFON and the author of You Have the Right to Talk to Aliens and the host of Alien Spirit TV with Sev on YouTube. You're listening to Wayne and Michelle at the Michigan UFO Sightings and Paranormal Encounters podcast. Hey there, it's Richard Serrett, occasional weekend guest host of Coast to Coast AM and host of The Conspiracy Show. And you're listening to Wayne and Michelle's Michigan UFO Sightings and Paranormal Encounters podcast. What's up, everyone? This is Burton. And Aaron from Lost in the Dark podcast. And raise your horns because you're listening to Wayne and Michelle from the Michigan UFO Sightings and Paranormal Encounters Podcast. Hi there, this is Christina Gomez of Paradigm Shifts and the Debrief Media, and you're listening to Wayne and Michelle on the Michigan UFO Sightings and Paranormal Encounters Podcast. What's happening, ladies and gentlemen? This is Big Willie with the UFO Garage Podcast, where we're all about UFOs, aliens, and all things weird. I also run a podcast, Band of Bearded Brothers, with my brother Micah, B-O-B-B for short, and you are listening to Wayne and Michelle with the Michigan UFO Sightings and Paranormal Encounters Podcast. So take a seat and buckle up as they educate us on all things woo. I was just sitting here thinking, you know, when you said use it in the real world and a lot of uh, students, you know, when, when I'm teaching science or I hear from the math teachers, you know, the kids would probably be more engaged if there's a way we could find, you know, to, to take a kid in algebra two and have them apply it in some way in a, in a real world situation. And the kids don't kind of get that, but now I'm thinking I should make some kind of a lesson where the kids have to diagram a UFO UAP engagement from fighters and calculate, you know, Mach 0.6 is one mile per, you know, one mile, one mile per minute. Is it? Uh, so it's 0.6 is six, six miles a minute, six miles a minute, six miles a minute. So yeah, yeah which so, is easy. Cause then it goes to your, uh, yeah. Mile every 10 seconds. And, and again, I, before I jump into the, area here I want to get into that's going to be probably a little controversial. Again, I just want to back up that, you know, civilians, you know, I was in, I was an infantry grunt. Okay. I was permanently on the ground, except if I was jumping out of an airplane or repelling out of a helicopter. So, you know, I was that guy on the ground that was probably going to get bombed to death, (laughs) you know, but, but, uh, you know, civilians don't understand like the, the training that is involved in the money 
I mean, our defense budget's huge. So the training of people flying multi-million dollar aircraft for defense of our airspace and this country is no joke. I mean, there's, there's no better in the world. That's why we can dominate anywhere we go. And we train other, you know, we train other countries and things. So that brings me to like my next kind of let's dig into the dirt a little bit. So when those three videos were released, I noticed that there seemed to be a rush of debunkers out there that start running out there and they start attacking while the pilots don't know what they're talking about or what they see. Oh, it's lens flare. Uh, This is the, the heat blooms from the jet engine uh, of another aircraft. Oh, that's a small plane. That's a bird. That's a weather balloon. And you talk about this in a couple of your YouTube videos, which I thought was fascinating. And you even went head to head with one of these debunkers, I guess. And that was Mick West. So what are your thoughts on the people who almost seem invested in some way to prove these things are not some type of craft in our airspace that we can't identify? Now, nobody's saying they're aliens. We don't know what they are. We can't identify them. I'm not making that leap yet. And it just seems to me that there's almost an investment of saying that the Navy is wrong. The Aegis cruisers, which are the most sophisticated in the world set to protect nuclear powered aircraft carriers and can shoot down missiles with their missiles. Their radar is so good to protect the fleets. What's your thought on these people? And I don't want to pick on them, but just when they're attacking like military and things like that and blowing you guys off. And, and and I saw your debate with Mick and he just poo pooed anything that you were trying to say. And I'm like, this guy has 18 years of military training. Do you know what that means? And then when I said that in my own head, it clicked like, no, he doesn't know what that means. He doesn't get the 70 to 80 hours of training. Like I was trained on the tow two anti-tank system, launching it off of a Humvee. You know, we trained like crazy on those things, the different optics we could use and things like that to take out tanks, you know, three miles away using a, a wire guided missile. So I could do those systems back in the day. I mean, that was 30 years ago, <laughs> but just the, I, I don't know, the disregard for our aviators in, in what you guys go through kind of threw me for a loop. And then I was like, he's just ignorant, but what's your thoughts on it? Yeah. I mean, I had a meeting with McWest last week about the, the gimbal, gimbal symbol. He spent, I, I don't know how many hundreds of hours or how long it taken, but he basically coded this simulator. Um, you can go, it's on his website, you know, I'm not going to mention it, but <laughs> anyway, <laughs> I'm not going to give them, actually, I think uh, any, in the end, so my short answer is any publicity is good publicity, especially about this topic, because uh, it just goes away, right? You know, you can show people, hey, there's this, you know, all of these crazy events, you know, look at Nimitz, you know, it's been out since 2017. You kind of mentioned that, hey, these debunkers came out uh, right away, but they've been there kind of from the beginning, you know, in 2017, when when Lou Elizondo, you know, when he started talking about this and the New York Times article came out, it seemed like there was there was some uproar. But then it, it goes back to, OK, what about Afghanistan? You know, what about uh, our 
healthcare issues, you know, it just goes out of the, exactly out of the, out of the limelight. So as long as they're not actively lying and trying to, you know, pass out misinformation, then I think it's actually healthy. You know, you, you need someone approaching it from a skeptical viewpoint or that, you know, is fully skeptical. You know, I'm pretty sure Mick West is fully skeptical um, and he approaches it from that angle. But I don't think it's we should be blaming him, you know, because people watch him. Um, you know, my recent video. Yeah, look at my recent videos. Um, they've been 10xing his his videos and views. So ultimately, it's, you know, I, I don't even really need to. If he's correct, if he has a valid point, uh, then I, I should address it, you know, because if it's valid, then it updates the, you know, it updates the algorithm. Yeah, <laughs> it updates the solution. And, and that's what I want. I, I want. I just want to find us like you guys. You know, I think you get tired of the, the politicians and the cultural things and just uh, we're I think we're all just kind of monkeys. Right. And, and we have really, really huge, intense biases that we can't see, <laughs> which I, which is laughable when you really start analyzing when you really start analyzing what it is to be human. You know, um, so. Yeah, at the end of the day, I think it's it is it's good. I think what Mick West does is actually good. His methods maybe can be annoying and frustrating, <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, but at the end of the day, if if he's correct on things, I need I think people should listen and and then update update the solution, you know. So so I think he he actually could be correct on the the gimbal um, rotating as something internal to the pod, and that you know I think that could be correct and and that doesn't change my solution you know if you go back to my last video on it uh i think that it's still inside of 10 nautical miles and should be identifiable right it shouldn't show up as a you know whatever 15 foot across or i can't 30 foot across circle um in any instance right it, it and then the fact that it rotates uh it, the fact that it can put a glare like that onto an app clear system onto that system that's specifically designed to not be jammed right you know, right. those military grade systems, I think that things like two or $3 million, it's not some little run of the mill system, right? It's designed to not be jammed by enemy lasers, by enemy systems. Okay. So it, you it mean has, it's not the $300 uh, FLIR <laughs> little thing he's using in his garage. And, and Mick, yep. if you listen to this, I'm not, I'm not disparaging you. I'm just, I'm calling into question his, his procedures. They're not scientific at all. I, and, and the reason I say that is because using an iPhone within an iPhone to video a light bulb in your garage and spinning it around is not the same thing as going out and asking the Navy to rent an F-18 and have an <laughs> experiment, right? And, and repeat the experiment with the exact same equipment, same atmospheric conditions, and have these things peer reviewed. And that's why I mean, that's why I'm saying like, it seems like there's a, there's almost an investment of I'm going to waste my time and energy to prove that these things are wrong. Even though I don't have the same equipment, I don't have the, the, uh, the, the FLIR technology. And you know, I can, I can reproduce all kinds of stuff in my garage too. That doesn't mean that's how it happened. And um, so I guess that's where my science kicks in. It's like, I want to, I want a list of your procedures. I want to be able to repeat it and it, it's got to be repeatable and it's got to be something we can measure. And, 
you know, you're putting numbers to it. You know, you're doing the trigonometry. Uh, you're talking about the speeds and the distances involved and how you're coming to those answers. That's real. And you're using real world data. That's the stuff I'm more drawn to and why I wanted to talk to you ab about these things and light bulbs and iPhones and, you know, not the right equipment is not something that I'm going to pay serious attention to. And, and maybe that, as you were talking about biases, maybe that's my bias, right? Well, it's funny. I, I just, I tell you, I always get asked about Mick West, you know? <laughs> oh, really? Okay. And I guess, yeah. Yeah. And the, and the, the point is, uh, I guess I'll know it's, he's gone when, uh, when I don't get asked about him, you know, it's like, uh, <laughs> it's like Voldemort. You know, like they don't say Voldemort, you know, like, right. Uh, he who no, shall no, not, not be named. named. <laughs> yeah. No, but I, I, no, I actually, I, I don't mind working with Mick, you know, whatever I've, I've, I think as long as his solution, you know, if you just, it's how you do it too, right? If you just throw out troll comments on Twitter and you actually never go and do any work. Yeah. That's one thing, you know, which uh, there's a lot of people that do that <laughs> anonymously, right? These guys are like, whatever. Oh Yeah. The keyboard the, warriors. The anonymous trolls. Yeah. I'm like, okay, man, you don't even use your real name and you want me to take you seriously. Yeah, whatever. Um, but, you know, Mick West, he does, he's, he's out there. He's using his real name. Uh, he, he went and designed that whole simulator, built this whole simulator that shows that it, it wouldn't be possible if you have some kind of internal systems. Um, but it's difficult, right? It's classified. So he's going to hit, hit against some wall. But, uh, yeah, I'd say, you know, talking about them makes them more powerful. And then, uh, but we should listen if they have any valid uh, points. I, I agree. just approach the angle from a different view. You know, I, I approach it from, hey, I think it's, it could and most likely is true that it's extraterrestrial or it's definitely on the table. It's a definite possibility. And he approaches it from the other side. Um, but as long as he's open with his analysis, then, then I'm fine with it. Yeah, I, I agree. I just... I don't know. Like I said, my bias and, and immediately when, when I see that, you know, Hey, our, our pilots flying these aircraft, you know, can identify things in the air. Are you kidding me? We have the top, they are the top trained observers. They're only going to look at things that are going to be anomalous. Like, why is that there? What? Cause they do this all the time and, and it's life or death. I mean, I just, you know, Anyways, I don't want to get on it because yeah, I'm showing my bias. Well, well, I mean, if you look at it, all you really need is one valid event. Yes. You just need one, right? You may, if you have one valid event, it opens up the door to everything else, or at least many other, many other cases. And for me, the Nimitz is one valid event. I mean, you have, you have those four aviators with their eyes seeing, it. you know, you have radar contacts. They got it on uh, FLIR one. Um, well, yeah, so I'll just go to the FLIR one then Yeah. Uh, just to finish out the three videos. So the gimbal, we kind of finish on that. I think it's nothing has really changed for me uh, on the final solution. I think it's inside of 10 nautical miles. I think it's anom anomalous. And the glare, uh, the gimbal rotation looks like it could be from inside the, the targeting pod, um, but it's still anom anomalous. Like it shouldn't be putting a glare like that into a, uh, a system designed to not be. We're jamming military yeah. radar. Yes, exactly. So it's the whole thing is anomalous. Yeah. Um, and, and so that all uh, that was the, the gimbal. Right. And then we go to the, the FLIR one now. So you, for me, that event was, you know, you have those four aviators and then they launch again. 
and they try and lock onto this thing. Chad Underwood does, right? And Flare One, just just to be clear, Flare One is the Tic Tac, correct? Yes. Yep. So basically, David Fravor, he's out with a a two ship. He's training up uh, Dietrich, right? She's new to the squadron or newish. She's a lieutenant. Um, And they're doing an air defense exercise. So 2v2, they're defending the carrier and they're integrating with the Princeton, you know, the ship. Um, And, you know, everything is defend the carrier. From my limited understanding, everything's about defending the carrier from Exocet missiles. And so they use the airplanes as like the long range artillery kind of, if you think of it that way. And then the Princeton, it does kind of your quarterbacking. They they can see everything on the radars. Um, And then the carrier, I guess, just drives around really fast, you know, trying not to get shot. Um, And so they went on on that. And the Marines, two ship of, of Hornets takes off first, goes hundred miles away to their red cap far away. And then David Fravor takes off with Dietrich and goes to their blue cap. Um, they're vectored out to the West. I assume by Kevin Day. I don't know if, if that was the actual uh, controller. Do you know if Kevin Day was a controller? Or- I think he was. Yeah, I think he was. Yeah. He was the one that asked them, you know, uh, what's your weapons complement? And okay. He did do that. Yeah. yeah. Okay, cool. So then, uh, yeah, so as they take off, they vector out to the west, south of the San Clement Island, kind of out in the middle of, you know, the ocean, essentially. Um, and, and basically, they vector out there, they they see the tic-tac, you know, they they have a, about a five-minute engagement with it, where they, it maneuvers it with them and then disappears, essentially, back to their cap point, okay? They go to their cap point, uh, and it's not there. They never see it again. They do the air defense exercise, and when they come back to land now, Fravor tells Underwood, who's launching on his own uh, training mission. And I believe Underwood's working with the Hawkeye. So now the Hawkeye's out there. Uh, that's an E-2. They, it's an airborne warning and control system. You know, they have, a, they have a much larger radar. They can, they can detect also uh, weird signals, right? They have ESM um, capabilities. So they're also out there, and they vector Underwood um, onto this contact. He locks it up with his targeting pod, and that is the FLIR-1 video. Um, which I think it looks just like a Tic Tac. You know, I, originally I didn't, I, you know, it's funny when you, you don't think things are possible, you just can't even see them, you know, or, or if, you, if you're so sure one direction, um, you know, the other side just is blind. You know, your brain kind of makes you blind to it. But Absolutely. I went back and looked again and the IR, you know, TV, it looks just like kind of like a, a brown Tic Tac, if you will. It's an optical, TV optical of that video. Uh, but then I, I, if you look in IR, it looks just like, a, a cylinder, you know, like, just like, <laughs> it like does. you described. Yeah. So that is the FLIR 1 video. Um, so for that one, I was just listening um, to Kevin Knuth. He made a, he actually made a peer review paper uh, with Peter Reale. Um, and I, sorry, I forget the third person that actually wrote it. Um, and they talked about the accelerations that would be required. Um, and so there's some interesting things from the actual video. When I looked at it, um, you know, it, it it appears to break lock, okay, at the end, right? If you look at the very end of the video, and it looks like the, the object shoots out of the left of the screen very quickly. Um, so Mick West, basically his argument was that it actually, if you, if you track the targeting pod as it's actually tracking across the screen, right? Uh, um, it's actually tracking. And when the targeting pod is, loses lock, it will stop tracking, if that makes sense. Right. Yep. So it's it's on auto track. It's on an auto track. It's automatically tracking, automatically tracking. And then when it loses lock, it just stops wherever it's pointing. And and that's how it works in the F-16, actually. Now, now Underwood could have been continuing to push to the left. Right. He has a little cursor. He can control it with a little thumb cursor. I, actually, no, I think it's his middle finger in the F-18. 
Um, so he can control the cursor to put it back onto the onto the object, but we just don't have any of that data. You know, I don't know if he was pushing it in. Um, you know, you know, I, if, as a safety officer, I could tell you 100% if he was, right? I would get the, the black box data and I would get inputs from the cockpit and it would say, yeah, you know, uh, rear cockpit is inputting a, you know, a cursor left switch actuation. But we don't have that data or, you know, just give me the radar data with the radar tapes. I could probably confirm it as well just by having some other some other uh, reference or the Hawkeye radar tapes. Right. That would also help or the Princeton radar tapes. Um, but from the we don't have a lot of the data that that exists. We get 27 seconds of, you know, videos. Yeah, well, they you know, the Underwood did talk. And so according to him, OK, according to him, he says it just shoots off. Um, and, you know, based on the range, I think he could see like a dot. You know, I think the pilot could have seen, could have made contact, visual contact at that range. Kind of hard. It really depends on the environmentals and everything, but it's possible that the, he could have seen something actually physically fly if it did. But for me, the, the more telling thing or telling um, conclusion is that there's nothing faster than an F-18, right, that we know about, except for a missile system, you know. Uh, if you if that thing was somehow could be flying and then could somehow put on rockets, right? Then you're going to be able to outmaneuver an F-18. But there's nothing out there that can outmaneuver it that we know about. No air breathing device um, that can that can outmaneuver an F-18. So it either just like went stealth or they just lost it, or or, or more likely, what I think is that it it did disappear in some instance. So I guess I can't prove that it that it flew off the screen. Um, At least with the limited data that you have. I mean, you know, that's all we've got. What Underwood says happened after the lock, and that's pretty much it. For me, the, the thing on that is the, the visual, that the visual from the video matched uh, the visual description that Fravor gave and, and Dietrich gave uh, and Slate. He also com confirmed it from the, you know, um, so it matched that for me. That was amazing. FLIR 1 or the Tic Tac appeared back at the cap point where the, the yeah. combat patrol zone, almost like it knew where these things, where, where the, the planes were supposed to be going. And I think if you do that calculation, it was like 60 miles in five seconds. It was like something like 700 and some miles per hour in an instant. Or something like that. It was some ridiculous number. Not even possible. Yeah. So it was sixty miles, and I think he said in thirty seconds. Is what he said. Okay. So that would be, yeah, sixty miles and thirty. That's thirty seconds in a in a minute. Uh, oh, sorry, thirty miles in a, in a minute. So that's Mach Mach uh, three. Yeah. Yeah. So you're so like what, I said, four, nothing. Fourteen hundred miles per hour, something along those lines. Yeah. So that would be Mach 3 right there. And so nothing can move that fast that we know about, if it's the same thing. Supposedly it is, you know, it had the same signature is what they said, and it had the same track number. But but there was also even more telling is before they had the interaction with the Tic Tac, is they were seeing these contacts from the ballistic missile defense system. You know, so they were seeing contacts from space come down to 80,000 feet. And then uh, in groups of 10 or 20. And then at 80,000 feet now, the Princeton radar was picking them up, the Spy-1 radar. And from 80,000 feet, they were seeing them drop down to 28,000 feet and then down to the surface in less than a second. 
And that's even crazier. If you look at that, those numbers, Kevin Knuth calculated out to 5,000 Gs. Yeah. So, so 5,000 Gs is, you know, and that's what he's talking about. These are spaceship speeds. You know, if you're talking, what would a spaceship need to actually go get around to other planets? And that is what you would need. Like with that, you could go to other planets. Yeah, that's, you know, that kind of gets overlooked. And one thing that gets overlooked too, and I know we're running short on time. Um, one of the things that, that I find fascinating that gets glossed over is the fact that the Tic Tac was first spotted by Fravor over a disturbance of water. What was going on in the ocean with that thing above it? What, you know, what is this thing doing? Or what was under the water to cause the water to break the way that it was? And then it that disappeared when the Tic Tac came up to, to almost seem like it was going to engage them. And that kind of gets forgotten because the Tic Tac stuff is so fascinating. But what's what's going on? I mean, our oceans are largely unexplored. You know, that aspect of it always uh, gets me like, what are they doing? <laughs> There was an amazing, um, I was reading an article just for this last video I did last week. I saw that there was an account, uh, and this was in the debrief article. Um, it was in the debrief that basically there's a very, very clear video of a triangle coming out of the ocean, a large triangle. Uh, and it, and it, it basically had three uh, white, you know, at every vortice, there was large white, uh, circles three circles on the vortice and this large triangle just comes out of the ocean and then goes straight up into space. And that sounds exactly um, like what myself and my wife saw. And is that that's, what you saw? That's yeah. Yeah. It was the triangular. It was, craft. it was the triangle. It was about, if I was estimating size 250 to 300 feet aside, hovering above the road. Uh, yeah. It was insane. So cool. It changed our whole trajectory of our, our lives, you know, like doing this podcast yeah. and talking to people and trying to learn. Th and my, my curiosity is just like, I want my hands on it. I'm a nuts and bolts guy, as I've been called by previous guests. Cause you know, I, I I'm, I'm fascinated with the materials. I'm fascinated with what they're doing here. I'm not on board with the space brothers thing just yet. Cause you know, if you can't, divulge what you're doing in our airspace and and things like that i don't necessarily trust you and i know some people do when we ran into this thing and we had to drive very close to it i mean i was gunning my jeep i was like we're getting the hell out of here because i don't know what this thing is because it's not yeah. an aircraft it's not an aircraft i've ever seen before and it's hovering with these three lights in each corner and it rotates and starts moving parallel to us along the expressway. It didn't bank. There was no aerodynamics yeah. at all. And it was yeah. shimmering. It had like a skin to it that was absorbing yeah. the light, almost like um, the, the predator type of thing, like a cloaking thing. It was absorbing cool. the street lights uh, that were reflecting night, off then. the ground. It was at night. Yes, it was at 2.30 in the morning when we saw this thing. And it was, okay. you know, we were not out drinking. We, you know, we were playing hardcore bingo at a bingo hall. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, so, it, yeah. you know, I don't drink. I don't ever drink, Michelle, maybe once in a while. But, you know, I was driving and I was like, 
okay, there's a there's an airliner. We're very close to Detroit Metro Airport. I said, there's an airliner. It's very low. There's no place for it to land. I think it's going to crash on the road. And as we got closer, I noticed that those were not landing lights. They were like these orbs that were controlling the release of the light. It was very bright, but it wasn't shining onto the ground and it was low. And I could make out the edge of the huge triangle. And Michelle saw it better than I did once I got on the, the expressway and she saw it rotate. And then she could see the back of it. And there was a couple of these, what did you say? Rectangular, the rectangular red lights, red lights that would be on the, the opposite of the apex, you know, kind of like an engine. And then yeah, we lost you have, of uh, like a drawing. Yeah. I love, I love that stuff. So cool. Man. Yeah. Um, I no, I, get, I, I can, yeah. I can easily draw something up, but I've, I've scanned, you know, the, the interwebs and, and found all kinds of pictures of triangles oh, yeah. and things that, I'm like, that's very similar to what we saw. Okay, cool. Yeah, yeah no, that's perfect. Just a link or something. Very, uh, I'm very curious. Okay. Yeah, I don't, so- oh, I have, I have a huge theory in that. Um, <laughs> my nature, <laughs> nature of the universe theory. Uh, yeah, probably for a different podcast though. Um, yeah, we, we can save yeah, that for another time. Their control. Yeah, basically control mechanisms. You know, the idea is we're in a much larger. Um, ecosystem that we understand yeah yeah That's i tend to agree so the, these are connections with the with the rest of the ecosystem that we just haven't yet uh, uh started to understand well i know you're pressed for time loving your your retired life there in portugal and and having a great time and um and you got some appointments you got to get to because i did want to ask you a little bit about the the uh, UAPs that seem to be observing the Aegis cruisers, there's Aguadilla, there's the Turkish UFO, um, but we'll we'll save that for another time. We're going to go ahead and get ready to close you out here. All right. So the okay. signature question, Chris, do you have any connection to Michigan at all? To Michigan? Uh, I mean, I, I have happy thoughts when I think of it. <laughs> no. <laughs> that's it. Is it because it's the state that can wave to you? <laughs> the mitten state. The mitten state. I like I don't know why I get a I went there um uh I went to a wedding out on the outside of Detroit actually and I remember very pretty it was very pretty with the countryside with the flowers and the trees and uh so yeah I that's my only connection I guess. No. Oh, okay. You guys now. Yeah, there you go. And uh, speaking of your YouTube channel and stuff, uh, do you have anything planned coming up on your YouTube channel that is about this phenomenon? And how can people uh, find you and reach you? Yeah, every week. So every week on Friday, I I publish. um, Lately, it's been exactly about these nuts and bolts kind of engagements. Um, But I am, like you said yourself, just you want to know. You're just really interested. Um, And I do think that we have to we have to understand more of the big picture of the universe before we're going to start to figure this out. You know, it's, it's obviously been 80 years and it's been 80 years for, for probably a few reasons. And so, um, yeah. So anyway, uh, I publish every Friday on my YouTube. So it's just my name, Chris Lado. You can uh, just search there and yeah. Awesome. All right, Chris. Well, thank you very much. And we will uh, hopefully talk to you soon. This was great. Thanks for being our uh, one-year anniversary and our season finale guest. Awesome. Happy to be on. Congrats.
See, Michelle, I told you that was a great interview. It's a great way to end the first year of the podcast. Yes, I agree. That's uh, what a season finale. What an awesome guest to have on. You know, I really tried not to rant too much, but I have to say, and I'm going to say it here again, I really get irritated by people that discount our highly trained military personnel, especially the pilots. These aviators are the cream of the crop. You don't fly a $70 million aircraft for the government to defend our country. You don't give that to just anybody. When they say that they're the eyes in the sky, they're the eyes in the sky. Yeah, they are trained on how to spot aircraft and how to use these high-tech target designator pods or the designation pods that they have, the FLIR. They know how to use the cameras. They know these things inside and out and use them to identify all kinds of things. And when they're flying these jets and they come across these UAPs and they get them in the targeting pod and they don't know what it is, and you can watch the videos of the gimbal of the FLIR 1, also known as the Tic Tac, and you can watch the Go Fast, you can hear these guys, they don't know what these things are. They've seen hundreds of jets. They've seen hundreds of small aircraft, drug runners and things like that, helicopters, you name it. And yet, we still have people out there that want to say that these guys don't know what they're talking about or what they saw. It's just mind-boggling. And by the way, I'm just going to throw this out there. These guys never fly alone. They're always flying with a wingman, and they're usually in a flight of two or four. And depending on the aircraft, each aircraft may have two people inside of it, the pilot and the weapons officer. That's what they call the Wizzo that sits in the back of the F-18. So you have four sets of eyes looking and seeing these things, chasing them down and trying to get good video and identify what these things are. Nope, nope, that's lens flare. No, you're looking at a plane or a weather balloon, even though the weather balloon is sitting perfectly still and the winds are 120 miles per hour. I mean, I don't know what else needs to happen for people to get it, but there are just some people out there, and maybe they're scared that their world's going to be turned upside down with this knowledge, but these things seem like they've been here for quite a while, and observing us, observing them, observing us. I don't know. It's a pet peeve. I get irritated with it. And I understand where they come from, and it's good to have skeptical people, but sometimes if you're too skeptical, you know, that can cost you. So, I don't know, I find these people to be very credible. And by the way, the radar planes that are flying, like he says, the Hawkeye, the E-2 Hawkeye, or if the Air Force is flying a command and control radar system, it's the AWACS, right? These things are picking up things floating and flying around in the sky. And you're telling me that our aviators can't identify them. It's nuts. Sorry. Sorry for anybody out there that's a skeptic. 
I'll listen to you, but the credibility of our pilots is very, very high. I don't know, Michelle, you got that look on your face. What do you think? I know I'm ranting a little bit. It's okay, Goose. I got you. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Great. All right. So, um, closing out the podcast, right? Yeah, we, uh, we, we took a look at the countries that listen to the podcast. And one of the countries where we do have listeners is the Ukraine. Yeah. So we decided that we wanted to just give a quick shout out to the people in the Ukraine. We want you all to stay safe and get through this uh, military action that's happening from Russia. It's a very complex political thing. It's not a three minute snippet on any news site that's going to tell you what's been going on video so right this this goes long and and deep for russian and ukrainian and their internal problems it's very very nuanced and very very complicated and complex but we're thinking about you yes we are praying for your safety and through the words of one of my favorite poets, um, and in fact, my students are studying some of her work now, and it is Mrs. Maya Angelou, and it is Still I Rise. So this one is for you, the people of Ukraine. You may write me down in history with your bitter, twisted lies. You may trod me in the very dirt, but still like dust, I'll rise. Does my sassiness upset you? Why are you beset with gloom? Because I walk like I've got oil wells pumping in my living room. Just like moons and like suns with the certainty of tides, just like hopes of springing high, still I'll rise. Did you want to see me broken, bowed head and lowered eyes, shoulders falling down like teardrops, weakened by my soulful cries? Does my haughtiness offend you? Don't you take it awful hard? Cause I laugh like I've got gold mines digging in my own backyard. You may shoot me with your words. You may cut me with your eyes. You may kill me with your hatefulness, but still like air, I'll rise. Does my sexiness upset you? Does it come as a surprise that I dance like I've got diamonds at the meeting of my thighs? Out of the huts of history's shame, I rise. Up from a past that's rooted in pain, I rise. I'm a black ocean leaping and wide, welling and swelling, I bear in the tide. Leaving behind nights of terror and fear, I rise. Into a daybreak that's wondrously clear, I rise. Bringing the gifts that my ancestors gave, I am the dream and the hope of the slave, I rise. I rise, I rise. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, remember, keep your eyes to the sky. You have been listening to the Michigan UFO Sightings and Paranormal Encounters podcast. You can reach us at mi.ufo.podcast at gmail.com. 
You can also find us on Twitter at MI underscore UFO and join our Facebook group by searching for Michigan UFO sightings and paranormal encounters. So until next time.